0: You're now listening to We Might Need Counseling.
1: Welcome to another episode of We Might Need Counseling podcast. I'm your host, Dougie Cash. I'm Javon. Can't believe he's here, Meredith. <laughs> and it is Friday. That's why. Good point. work Workday for you. <laughs> and today, I'm very excited. We have a very, very special guest. One of two people to sell out Madison Square Garden. Up until recently, I believe Kevin Hart did it. One of the only stand-up comedians to have multiple platinum comedic albums. One of the funniest guys of my childhood and even my adulthood. And this is, I'm trying to do this the right way because as, as I said, there's very few times in life I have fangirl moments. This yeah, you're is shook wonderful. right now. I'm shook. Yeah. I'm really yeah, shook. Hold on. Star of Waiting. Star of Employee of the Month. starring Jessica Simpson and Dax Shepard. Star of Mr. Brooks with Kevin Costner star of Dan in Real Life with Steve Carell, star of Good Luck Chuck with Jessica Alba, (laughs) star of My Best Friend's Girlfriend with Jason Briggs, Alec Baldwin, and Kate Hudson. We have
2: Dane Cook! Yes! Yes, that was great, man. That was a good introduction.
1: I'm not gonna lie, DC, I'm not gonna I feel like I may have to impose do that again. Like I, I was like, I feel like I could do that better.
2: Right. You might have needed maybe just like a, a quarter of a zanny before <laughs> you. Yeah, yeah.
0: I think we right. gotta check his pants. You
2: know. <laughs> I love it. You need to take the edge off, and then there's certain other people. It's so funny because sometimes, you know, you're doing an intro and then later on you're like, did I say Jason Briggs? <laughs> <I did. laughs>
1: you know, what's it's, Jason Briggs, it's Jason Bix, and I always mess up his name. I'm like, Briggs or Biggs? Which one is it? And he actually happens to be the star of one of my favorite franchise, the American Pie series.
0: Dane, he does it all the time. Who's the lead in Anchorman? What's his name? I don't want to talk about it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Anyway, exactly. Dane, what's up with Can't you, brother? How are name?
2: you? Thank you for being on the show. How are you? I gotta tell you, man, I'll, I'll, let me just kind of put it in a brief bite size sound bite for you because I could, I could ramble for a minute about how I'm feeling about the world getting back in session. But I'll tell you this. I did my first show last night in over a year. I stood on stage with a mic in my hand, spotlight, real laughs, real people. And I'm, so you're getting me on the best possible moment. Hopefully many, many more of the next year to come as we're all getting back, uh, you know, back live with each other, but it's great to be here talking about all of it with you dudes.
1: No, hell yeah. And you did that at Laugh Factor, right? Because that was I was I was gonna show up and pop up and correct me if I'm wrong, Dane Cook actually holds the title, the endurance title, right? For doing
2: seven hours of straight stand up. You beat Rich at that club, it was me and Chappelle for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. going back and forth. I don't even remember how much time I did, but it's not a world record. I think the world record is some dude in London. Did like 44 straight hours without leaving the stage of stand up. So it's not a world record, but it's a local record.
1: Okay, but but you beat some iconic people. Richard Pryor, if I'm not mistaken, held the record. You beat Richard, then Chappelle came and beat you. And in true dank fashion, he beat Chappelle, which is not a small feat because it is Chappelle.
2: So let's you, make I'm some sure, notes for that. I sure think Richard, even in whatever amount of time he did, was fun, was funnier than what I said. In longer, right. yeah. I wish I could have seen Pryor do his thing right there, man. I know. Was, I, I don't even amazing. know if I can
0: sleep that long. Like that's that's <laughs> impressive, man. Like like no breaks or anything. Is that how that? Obviously, no yeah, breaks. Would, oh, no wow.
2: breaks, No sitting down. I literally stood up, and then the cool thing was by we whatever time I started by six something in the morning of the forty five people that started there in the crowd pretty much everybody was there and the whole my whole kind of shtick was i knew everybody's name i came up with funny shit for every single person and then i took everybody on stage at the end of the night or now the morning and we did a group picture so it was like the biggest improv gang that you'd ever seen together
1: that's fantastic so hold on So, Dane, I want to do this real quick, right? I want to sort of backtrack for a little bit and just start at the beginning, right? Because one of the things that that I know just me and my friends and one of the things you hear in regards to Dane is like, Dane, back in the early thousands and mid thousands was like, you were the the number one guy. You were the guy. And then you disappeared. And I remember at that time I was living in New York and people were like, what happened to Dane? Because like you were the talk of the town every so often in school. Did you see the new Dane stand-up? Did you see the new Dane movie? So I wanna just start at the, the, the very beginning on how you got into the business. And this may be public record, but I just, you know, for those who live under a rock, let's just give a
2: refresher. So you're from Boston, right? Born in Arlington, Massachusetts, 10 minutes out of Boston, yes.
1: Okay, cool. And, and how did you get into the, the, the comedy game?
2: Stand-up comedy was the only thing I ever wanted to do. When mm-hmm. I was in seventh grade, I told my mom and dad, I'm not going to go to college. I'm going to pound the pavement and I'm going to get out there and I'm going to be like the people that I've been watching on The Tonight Show or listening to the comedy albums or Saturday Night Live. My mom was like, go for it. My dad was like, what? He was so clueless (laughs) and bummed out. He didn't know the arts. He was an athlete. He thought I was going to be like, you know, I had his frame. He thought I was going to be in there like a boxer like he was or playing football or something. And so I, I hit the ground running. 1990, did my first open mic stand up, never looked back. So it was all I have wanted to do. Now, who
1: at that time when you were growing up, like who were some of those comedians or people that influenced you and inspired
2: you? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because Marty Culner ended up directing my HBO special, Vicious Circle, and then Isolated Incident after that. And Marty directed the first stand up special that I really fell in love with, which was 1978, George Carlin for HBO on location. He filmed it in Arizona in the round. Marty directed it. I watched it a hundred times on a VCR tape that I had. And from there, it was like, okay, I want to be like Carlin or Pryor because two of these guys continued to evolve themselves and grow and change. And their stand-up reflected their opinions and their perspectives. So that was my goal. And it still is. Here I am 30 years later, and I've grown up with a generation of, of comedy fans.
1: So coming from Arlington, I'm not so sure what the landscape is there. I'm from New York, right? Was there a huge comedy scene there? Like, were there a lot of comedy clubs? Like, how did, and there was no social
2: media back then. So yeah, yeah. how did you make a name for yourself back then? It was the boom of comedy, they called it. And Boston really was where it it was set off, even before New York. I mean, New York is considered by, you know, all of us as the, the place where you get validated and you, you know, you earn your stripes. But Boston was a booming Comedy industry in the '80s. Everybody wanted to play the rooms. There was about 11 major downtown stages that were all renowned. Then there was like 30 ancillary spots around the city that were great. You could make great money. So when I started, I was coming off kind of the end of the heat that Boston was bringing, and so I got to be around the monsters of comedy. Like I learned under the best of the best of the best. And if you didn't bring it on any given night you were going to be sent packing. That was it.
1: Yeah, I know. Boston is one of those sports cities where the fans are, you know. The... No, no, yeah, yeah. Boston, so,
2: like like what I love about
0: Boston is one they're fanatics. Mm-hmm. But like they're knowledgeable about other, like, like they know their sports. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like because you, you know, out here in L.A., you know the Lakers are supposed to be good, but there's so many things to distract you. So it's like, yeah, pay attention when the playoffs start. Boston fans, they'll know about, a freaking Celtic game that's happening November 26th in the third, you know, that no one cares about. They're like, I'm all about it. I'm all about it. Like I like, <laughs> I respect that. I respect that. So, so David,
2: it, it, it was a tremendous uh, place to launch. I can and, imagine. And I wasn't going to go to New York mm. until I felt like I could hang with the Bostonian comics for the visitors. By, by the way, a lot of them coming from New York to do road gigs in, right. in Boston. So, I wasn't going near New York City, especially as a kid from Boston, knowing I got to bring it on stage. But I also got to know that, like, we all know the rivalry, Boston and New York. I was like, I'm not stepping out there until I can <laughs> smash on stage. That's it.
1: Now, would you say some of the best comics come from New York? Would that be sort of the, the place to go uh, to sort of really make
2: a name? Yeah, I think to this day, New York City is a place that you need to go because the energy, the environment, the history of the clubs that you can play. I think LA has grown into an equally important comedy city for reasons that we can maybe or maybe not get into later. Mm -hmm. But New York City, you know, when I started, it was like week one, I'm in New York and I'm seeing a a young kid named Dave Chappelle come into the clubs. And again, I'm a kid, but Dave's like, you know, everybody's talking about like, oh, Dave's been doing this since he was like 15. Within two or three months, it was like Dave was already at a level out of the gate where he was. He was one of the best comics I'd seen even then. Even back then, I could acknowledge he's, he's a phenom. He's got the stuff. And it wasn't just me. We all could see it. But I'll tell you something. It wasn't just Dave. It was what people like me were bringing. Or any given night, you'd see somebody like Dave Attell or Tony Woods would come in and rock. Or groups like Red Johnny and the Round Guy, who are no longer around, were like coming in and destroying like the laughs to this day. Have never been as bombastic as the shows that we were all a part of when we first hit New York City.
0: Right. Uh, no, it's interesting you say that because you obviously know your your comedy and you know it from the albums. And I remember the eighties and nineties; there was just like you could get it from so many different mediums. Do you feel like when you do become, you know, when you arrive? There, with all that history, do you feel like there is a torch that's passed, and you feel like okay, now I have this responsibility going forward, or you just so have so much tunnel vision on what you're doing that you can't even allow yourself to be affected by that?
2: Man, I'll tell you, if you think in comedy that the torch passed, you know, if you're if you're collecting a torch, then you're in the wrong industry because that <laughs> torch will be used to torch you. And if you start <laughs> to believe you earned or deserve a torch, then you're probably going to burn your own shit down. Right. It is a constant evolution it is a constant deconstruction and reconstruction if you're playing the long game if you want to be doing it like i do when i'm 88 like my my mentor and friend jerry lewis rest his soul then you know you can't accept that you're the shit because you're having a moment you can't accept that you're obsolete because your ebb has turned to a flow we don't look at it like that so when you made mention of Dane had a, a peak and where did you go? I don't know what you're talking about. Right. I know that media-wise, you could say, oh, that was an upper echelon or that was something that the media buzzed about. But we think differently. We're right. wired to look at what what the industry says is not what a stand-up comedy right. learns or dictates or embraces with fandom. So, yeah, I feel like I'm on a lane next to all other things creatively because the way stand-up comedians are hardwired is a different philosophy from than other guests that you might talk to about the acting profession or the music profession.
1: Um, and let me mention this. Around that time, you had like the Andrew Dice Clays, the Seinfelds, and you know, for all the time's purposes, I want to say like, like Seinfeld is an icon, he's a legend, but his comedy didn't necessarily translate to me. I always felt he had a more mature type audience, but I feel like when you came into the scene, it's like you had more of a youthful sort of like you can connect with the young millennials at the time you were in shape, like all of these things. Now now was that intentional and sort of like what inspired the comedy that you, your comedy acts?
2: Sure. Yeah, no, when I was in my twenties, I was obviously going to observe and report about things happening in my twenties. So when I was playing colleges, you know, it's not like I had a lot of life under my feet to be able to talk about really in depth, you know and by the way they wouldn't have wanted to hear it right you want sex drugs rock and roll you want to talk about something that was uh alive and happening right now Mm -hmm. you know it's almost like back in the 80s you probably went to bruce springsteen because you wanted to born in the usa now you go and watch bruce springsteen because you want to hear glory days you want to be able to reflect on your own life and your own passages so coming out of the gate i knew that i was on to something pretty much immediately because there's a thousand colleges around Boston. Okay. I played a school a day. Oh, wow. I would call schools and say, you don't have to pay me. I'll bring a mic and a gorilla amp. Let me perform for you. Just because I knew that if I, if I connected with that generation of new comedy fans, mm-hmm. they might be able to prop me up and I might be able to bring them along. Yeah. So I, I did, man. I knew right away that I was at the, I knew that I was starting the next generation or the the recalibration of what stand up was versus the guys that I was watching in Boston the men and women there were getting a little long in the tooth they had their fans grown up over here and I was like okay here we go this is a reset and a restart and I'm I'm not going to lose this opportunity to pull them all in this is the cool thing about talking with comics and why I talk shop with with comedians from the Jerry Lewis all the way to the new guy a Matt Rife or somebody that like Here's the, the cool thing is once you get to know a comic, you think you know what a comedian is all about. Let me tell you something. I ran it. I never knew Dice. In 2004, I was in LA. I'd been here for a few years. I'm just kind of like still trying to fit. I'm still my spacing and trying to figure it all out. I'm outside a Mulberry Street Pizza. And I look up and, and Dice is standing right there. And he's like, hey, hey, Dame Cook, and we meet just randomly getting a slice of pizza. We talk for 45 minutes. We leave, we say goodbyes. I don't see Dice for like 10 years. We quickly see each other somewhere. Hey, what's going on? And I reflect 10 years ten years later on my conversation with Dice. And I remember thinking to myself, man, everything I thought Dice was going to be versus the conversation I had, holy shit, I even kind of projected what I thought Dice was going to be. A year ago, Dice calls me out of the blue and we just start talking one night You got, got your number i want we you know we we've uh, missed each other we uh, we start talking and i said dice i don't know if you remember this but we bumped into each other in 2003 and he goes oh yeah not only do i remember and then ready he told me everything <laughs> we talked about he remembered my dad's name wow. he remembered my dad was an athlete dude he is one of the smartest, most articulate, you can't put anything past him. Now mm. his persona, you might think something completely different, but that's the cool thing about these conversations is people get to see the inner workings of, of people like myself that love the craft of comedy, but we usually live a different lifestyle away from the stage. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And that's actually one of
1: the reasons why I wanted to do, you know, this podcast with Jovan. I think a lot of times people conflate someone's public image or, you know, the thing that they want to sell to the public with the real person. So I think you're 100% correct. Now, when you first hit the scene, was your comedy well-received from the beginning or, you know, was it a process? Like you talk about the first time you bombed and, you know. Yeah,
2: yeah, it it was, you know, it was a progress. It was a work in progress. And (laughs) even though I might've had some bombastic energy because I loved physical comedy like Eddie Murphy mm-hmm. was physical and Steve Martin was physical and guys like Martin Short or TV actors like John Ritter. Mm-hmm. I loved I loved a physical expression, but I also wanted to have great vernacular and incredible, I wanted to be able to paint verbal pictures. So I wanted to be able to use physicality, but I also wanted you to be able to watch it 15 years later. And when we're done laughing at my bootcut jeans or a hairstyle which was, you know, in at the time, I mean, some of the specials I look like I work at fucking Hot Topic now when I look back, right? <laughs> right? But the material, if it's honed, that'll live forever. And that's why some of the stuff that, you know, we can get into about early albums and comedy like still sticks because I worked really hard right. on making sure that it could stand the test of time in terms of the way that I, I wanted to craft it, the way I wanted to present it, you know? About seven or eight years in stand up comedy before you really start Seven, eight years? Yeah, about seven or eight years before you really start to feel like you can be really present and you're not chasing an idea or to be standing on a stage now, 30 years later, like I'm present. And then early years, you're kind of spinning as you're doing it. It takes a long time to quell that.
0: Right. Uh, yeah, I wanted to add to the flowers to you, because I'll be honest, like I love I feel like it's a master's class of some of the stuff they do, but it feels organic. But you are very your vernacular is very like, you know, specific and the way you you are able to like use observational comedy and, and basically hold on to that energy, but still project it back out to everybody. And the way you tell stories and tells is phenomenal. The idea of the circle stage to me was groundbreaking because it was perfect for you and you like you you brought up that one joke my favorite joke in, in vicious circle is the one about you know being a catholic kid and the little you know, it's so, I, I remember that, I, remember that. I used to always go to go and joke that. about that everything but you were so like dead on and everything but can you tell me about how you even came up with the idea of the circle stage to match your
2: style oh man cool i'm glad you asked that because when i mentioned marty colner directing george carlin That was filmed at the Celebrity Theater in Arizona in 78. The Celebrity Theater is in the round. George Carlin's special was in the round. So as a kid, 14, 15, watching it, my sister Kelly came home one night. She saw Steve Martin play Boston Garden and she was telling me about the show. And I said to my sister Kelly when I was 15 years old, I said, I'm gonna play Boston Garden someday. You're gonna come see your brother play Boston Garden. She said, I am? I said, yeah. And I was already thinking in my head at 15 years old, I already saw myself standing in front of a crowd at Boston Garden and actually saw myself on the like the basketball floor in my visions that I was kind of manifesting. I saw myself not on a side but smack down in the middle. I'd also seen concerts there. I saw Fleetwood Mac as a kid there and we were kind of staged in in the middle. They weren't like partitioned over on you know one side or the other. So all those years later having had that in my mind and then played a couple of places in the round when I met Marty, he was like, What you know, what's your dream gig? You know, and how could I direct it and what would you want me to do? I said, Marty, I want to do what you did with Carlin in seventy-eight. I want to play in the round. He goes, Where? I said, Boston Garden. <laughs> Just looked at me said, We're gonna need a lot of cameras. <laughs> <laughs> and really, here's what bolstered the idea of me doing in the round was, and why in the round? Why was in the round greater for my storytelling than a, a curtain behind me? Okay. In high school, my my mentor, an incredible man that came into my life, Frank Roberts, was my drama instructor, and we would talk, we would talk shop, we would talk theater. We were always talking about you know plays because that was primarily his Broadway background. And one day he said, "When you come into this scene today, Dane, I want you to open the door with the groceries, and I want you to keep your back kind of slightly turned so you only see this party face, and hang the hat up." He said, "And then I want you to turn to the audience." And I said, "Okay, well, why not just come in the?" door and be there and he looked at me and he said because there's nothing more powerful than the reveal and it was like holy shit and i started doing a little research on that and i finally realized and if you watch the special every time i turn and it's that it's right. that Great. moment in a new character or a new idea it gives you chills there's something that elevates the storytelling with the round to me
1: mm. that's that's powerful. interesting man like the- what was that moment for you, where you know, where like I guess you would say this was it, where you would discover, like where you like I'm actually leaving Boston. My life has changed. What was that moment?
2: Oh boy, shit, man. There were so many moments where I was like on the on the road going, what's the opposite of being discovered? <laughs> it, it, <laughs> when I when I tell you that, man, there was a lot. There was a lot of you know the lean year. You know, I, I you know we were I was a welfare kid out of Boston, so we didn't have you know. We didn't have anything really, you know, we were, we were in the, you know, system and and food stamps and free lunch tickets. And so for me, kind of like understanding that life is a grind and it was going to be a long road, even in doing what I loved. I remember finally being on the road after about four or five years and also like not even making enough money to cover the gas that I was putting in my little Chevy Cavalier to get to the fucking gig, really. This is not, it. and there's. I don't know if you know this, but there's no dental or benefits that come with Tommy. You know, I got a toothache in '92. I got it fixed in '98. Oh, <laughs> that's, wait, wait, that's, not funny. Funny that's not funny. stuck in on this one root canal that I had. Like, so when I finally got that call from New York City, and I had an opportunity to go and play Caroline's on Broadway, and then I had an opportunity with. A few of my buddies that we, we would take road trips, Patrice O'Neill, Bill Burr. Oh, wow. Love Bill Eric Burr. we pile into like Bill's shitty little truck or one of my cars that I borrowed from my girlfriend, and we'd go there. And when I went to that the comedy cellar in the Boston Comedy Club, which is you know now defunct, that was my welcome to a career because I finally started meeting like-minded people that went to New York, not just to be a local hero in their town, you could be a local hero in Boston and be like just a Boston guy, make a few, you know, bucks here and there and have a life and comedy. But I met the guys that wanted to do it in the long haul. And that was the validation. Just being around again, guys like Chappelle and some of the names I you know I named. It was like being around these funny young, you know, Sarah Silvermans and young men and women that were like, Hey, I'm I'm here and I can embrace that you're here because we want this for something more than just a few laughs in our hometown. So that's when I started to know fame and all that shit and adulation. That was still 10 years away. But yeah, that was when I started to feel like I'm kind of making it.
1: Now, when you, were you embraced right away or, because, you know, like, as you said, like, like no one's going to pass you the torch and it's very competitive and, you know, in this business, people want to hold on to their spots. Did you ever deal with anyone sort of hating on you or not, or were you embraced by other comedics that were, you know, household names at the time?
2: Yeah, no, I felt like, you know, there was animosity toward me from the very beginning, only because the era that was happening in Boston, there was a lot of also early alternative comedy going on. And there used to be a rift before alt comedy became like, really lucrative and money making, where there used to be a rift where the alt comics thought a mainstream comic like myself, like a main stage comic. They thought we were sellouts. We thought they were not funny and were just like relying on <laughs> or yeah. or whatever it was. It was like this stupid little you know East Side West Side thing, even in Boston. So I very quickly realized, oh wow, this is a dog eat dog industry as well, you know. And so yeah, if you get your spot, you know, which means like you're you're going up on a show with people that are are reliable and you know we're going to bring it, then you can't you can't miss your pitch. You ha- you you have to fucking throw heat. Every time, and if you don't, then those people that want your spot are going to talk you down or try to talk you out of town. And so, yeah, it, it was competitive, very competitive. That's fantastic. And I want to say,
1: as a former myself, when we were young, we want welfare. I just want to give a round of applause because it's not—it's not easy to make it out of them circumstances. And you know, you've made it to where you are. So I just want to make some love for that. But I also have to ask, coming from those circumstances, when you first started making money. Did you go crazy? Like, what was the craziest thing you purchased? And like, did you mismanage your money early on? When I was younger, I didn't necessarily understand the true value of money and how to make money work for me. So when I first started making money, I bought stupid shit. You know, I would buy things that didn't make any sense. Did you experience any of that? Well, I didn't. I didn't okay.
2: because just the way I was raised, and you know, my mom was the the breadwinner. My mm-hmm. dad, you know, drank and he was dealing with his own you know issues. My mom was cleaning. To- I'd go. I go with my mom. I do housekeeping. We clean offices together. She cleaned toilets with rheumatoid arthritis to get us mm-hmm. a little bit of scratch. So I mean, this when I say like early on in my life, I didn't care about the money. It wasn't mm-hmm. about the money. It was about I felt like I was somebody when I was entertaining people. So when the money started to come, I wasn't frugal. I've never been a frugal person. I want to be able to like have fun and take trips or whatever. But at the beginning, I also knew, wow, there's a lot of lean years because I've read the memoirs and I've watched the documentaries and biographies. And I've met some of the people that say, save your money because you never know when your moment might fucking, you Mm -hmm. know, you might have a time out for a little bit. That's a career, right? A career is like you're in, you're out. You're on the hot list. You're not. It's your fucking comeback. It's your whatever. It's always like ebbing and flowing. But I'll tell you, you're looking. You're, this chair is the first thing I ever bought. 1997. The one you're sitting in. <laughs> the one I'm sitting in. This <laughs> fucking chair. Every, let, let me tell you something. God damn. <laughs> if, you, if you come here, I tell people, sit in my chair. Because this is this fucking chair, mm-hmm. everything I did, I built an empire sitting in this fucking chair. Mm. 1997, I'm living on Hacienda Boulevard near Barney's Beanery little dinky apartment where like you could reach your refrigerator, you could open a window, <laughs> you could touch a toilet, <laughs> you know, all at the same time. Uh, and that's all while doors. being in a shower. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like one of those shitty little apartment buildings where somebody down the hall is, you know, fucking, you know, cooking dinner and you smell it in your apartment. Like it's right, you know, right there. <laughs> and as I was sitting there in 97, trying to figure out, okay, I'm in LA now. I came out here to do a, a sitcom that I was asked to be a part of for one year. Betty White played my grandmother. I, I was Grand Betty White's grandson for a season on a show that nobody to this day has ever fucking seen or really even heard of. But I was fortunate enough to get asked to do the show. And when the show came to an end, I was stuck in LA and it was either go back home to Boston, start over or figure out, okay, how can I hone my skills and how can I also better myself as a writer? Because here's the thing, and Dougie, you guys know this. It's like, if somebody comes into a room with all the effervescence and excitement that I have and they can't leave you a document with an idea or really, you know, I got a six-month-old Rhodesian Ridgeback puppy and sometimes she wants to be a part of the conversation. That's fine. <laughs> if, uh, if you can't print something out and leave it for somebody, then, you know, they're not going to just remember your ideas. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I need a great chair. I need a great chair. I'm going to use a little of this college money that I'd save and the TV show money that I, you know, just a little bit of money. I didn't make much on that. And I bought this. I went over and I bought this chair. Somewhere over in the valley, I found this place. And I would sit in this fucking chair. I would read books on screenplays. I would read books on how to write better. And then finally, I got an IBM ThinkPad computer with 56K modem. And I found something called AOL Chat. And I started talking to people one at a time that were in college and had my screen name. I put it on my website. And after about 10 or 20 people wrote me randomly, hey, what's up, man? I'm in, I'm in Texas. You you came to my school. Somebody else, you know, Yo, dude, I'm in fucking Detroit. Thanks for swinging by. We were at that little shitty gig in that fucking frat house that you did. I sat there after 20 or 30 people wrote me. I sat in this chair and I was like, I'm going to turn these 20 people into millions of people. And I knew I was ahead of the pack. I knew it. I had a glimpse into the future and I fucking started. I started getting to work right in this motherfucker.
1: That's incredible. And because you were actually the only comedian, if I'm not mistaken, that really built your fan base around MySpace at the time, right? Like very early on. Is that what you're alluding to?
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's well, incredible, well, yeah. It was even before, but once MySpace hit, it was like, oh, damn. Like mm-hmm. now yeah. I have a place where it's like post pictures. I can put clips up of, you know, my up. And you know what's so crazy? I wasn't keeping it a secret. I was going into the clubs every night. I won't name names, but I was around comics where I'd say, this is what you need to do tonight. I'd be like, <laughs> why? I'd be like, go home. Set up a MySpace, these are the three things that I, you should do right away. Um, and if I told 20 comics that, you know how many leaned into it like I did? Zero. Zero. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. Two years later when I started 100,000 followers, you know, 150, I'm selling out a club with one click. I didn't even have to pay for an advertising newspaper clip and I'm still going into the clubs going, you gotta be, do- this is it. Mm-hmm. This is what everybody's going to be doing in like 10 years. This is the spot. Mm -hmm. This is the platform. But a lot of comics just didn't have that same mentality that I had, which is I love business. I love promoting. I like recalibrating and building. And some comics only want to focus on the show. Mm -hmm. And that's not me. I like to focus on the 23 hours of the day around it. Mm -hmm. And then the show is the reward for the hard work.
1: This is true. And it's interesting because Donald Trump actually changed the political landscape in regards to how he promoted a campaign, because I believe he's the only politician or or, or presidential candidate that didn't spend nearly as much as everyone else because he utilized Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. So he changed the game. Who encouraged you to get into the acting? Like, Dane, like you have more than just the stage. Like, let's put you in front of the camera. Whose idea was that?
2: It well, goes back to Frank, who I mentioned in, in high school. You know, he put me in plays. I was doing like Cole Porter. I was like a fucking song and dance man. I had a hat on. I was doing like step ball <laughs> change and a bedazzled vest, and I was like a full on Broadway kid, summer stock, and doing plays around around Boston. I loved. You see, the thing is about acting. That's so you know, comedy is a it's a solo affair. You know, one person up there, and it's your ideas. And but but performance and acting it's like you're just a little piece of a puzzle. You're a director's vision. You need to be able to figure out what they want. And then you get a volley with other people. You got to listen. You know, comedy, I just talk. You got to really listen when you're performing. So when I first started getting the opportunity to do acting, I took it very seriously. I let the people know on the cast and crew and in production that I was there to not only work, but hopefully to elevate. And once people saw that I did that, it was like I started getting a few opportunities to do not only comedies, but then some dramas, because my reputation was, I'm going to leave you with more than what you expect from me. And that, trust me, this town, more than anything, this town wants somebody who's going to show up on time, be clear eyed, lucid, ready to work. <laughs> they want that editor to fucking look at that footage and go, we, this is a lot. They gave right. us a lot of stuff that's my job, that's what I'm gonna deliver on, and I've had the opportunity to have two careers, mm-hmm. dramatic and comedic.
0: My first introduction to you was in Wedding, and it was one of my favorite movies, great cast, but at the time, yeah, obviously, it was my first introduction, I didn't know who you were, but I felt like you stole the movie with the stuff that you were doing and, and everything that was going on in the kitchen made you really think about how you treat, you know, people at, at restaurants restaurant. <laughs> and whatnot, yeah. But can you tell me about like, how much of that was just something that you came up with? I, Cause you guys look like you were having a blast and there's yeah. great minds there. Ryan Reynolds just looks like you guys could probably play the dozens all day long, you know, so witty. So can you kind of go back to that? Cause I know you've done, and you've had your own movies and you've been like the, where you're the star, but this ensemble cast to me, I still go back and watch it. Cause it just makes me laugh so much. And, and it reminds me of the first time I was introduced to you and you stole the show, but can you kind of go back to that and tell us like what, what that was like?
2: Yeah, it was a little like, we. We knew we had an opportunity to make something that was in that office space realm, but with restaurants, you know, we, we all had worked in restaurants. You know, you're struggling as a any kind of, you know, entertainer. We all had backstory on that. So when Rob McKittrick came, the director, and said, you know, here here's the part. You know, you're only ever in these scenes in the kitchen. You can improvise, but here's kind of what we need from that from that character. Well, I knew Floyd. I knew that guy. I'd worked with a, I based it on a guy that I actually had worked with At a uh, pizza place, growing up, so I had an idea of how I wanted to play the character. But unlike the other movies that, if we even talk about them, which which was very much like, okay, here's the lead role catalyst, da da da. For me, the the only movie I took a different approach was on waiting. And to me, waiting was a story about (laughs) Floyd who worked in the kitchen, (laughs) and everything else was none of my business. I didn't give a fuck what Ryan was doing or Anna (laughs) Faris was. That movie was out front to me. I was like all right, I'm only in these kitchen scenes. And I don't, I didn't even have a scene with Ryan. That was all that, that exterior stuff. So to me, it was like, this is my movie about Floyd who works in the kitchen and is, uh, you know, irreverent and rude and ignorant. But it was, it was a blast because every time Rob said action, he would keep the camera rolling and say like, okay, forget the script, you know, give us some extra, you know, banter. And we, we did, it was so, so fun
0: that game where you made you we know, are trying to trick each other into yeah, seeing. Oh, in oh, that was amazing. <laughs> it was, it that was amazing, was. man.
1: <laughs> then let me ask you this Dan, And, and I want to figure out, I want to try to ask this the right way. So it's like when you think about black comedy and white comedy, it doesn't always, you know, uh, cross over, right? And I feel like you were one of the first com- yeah, that's true. comedians to do that. I'm trying to figure out how to ask this the right I, way. I, think, I know what
0: you're saying, because I, real quick, my my buddy of mine, mm-hmm. you know, and, and black dude, but it's more hip hop, mm-hmm. the hip hop community, like, doesn't really like to endorse a lot of white comedians. Mm-hmm. He just doesn't. He's like, I, this doesn't resonate with me. I don't really like it. Except for Dane Cook. Mm-hmm. That's what they all say. He's like, except for Dane Cook. Were you conscious of that? Like, right. like, were you aware that you knew, hey, look, my brand of humor, it doesn't matter. Or even specifically, like, hip hop is going to love what I do, too
2: you know i a lot of the early gigs that i did especially boston and new york if there was a show and it was like whatever a you know a black night themed show whatever they would be called out here in la they have like chocolate sunday right. and the uh like chocolate black, sunday,
1: chocolate,
2: <laughs> sunday. Yeah. chocolate sunday right whatever those early shows were i first of all i just wanted to get on stage but i also never i didn't want to be a a regional comic which meant like i didn't have jokes that were about like the laundry mat on the corner that everybody knew was funny to make i wanted my comedy to to be able to uh, translate. And so when I would do those early shows, I talk about being like in the system, a welfare kid with a mom and a family trying to pretend to be middle class when we Mm. couldn't even afford the house we were in. So (laughs) I felt like more than anything, some of the rough outside gigs that I was doing with guys like Patrice O'Neill, and Patrice was a Dorchester kid, Roxbury. So when he would bring me to do those shows, I felt like, hey, you know what, these these crowds are into me, even though, you know, aesthetically, we may look a little different from a melting pot crowd on a Friday night. We were all getting the same message from each other. Mm-hmm. We we're just talking about the hardships and the fucking things that we had to, you know, overcome. And so for me, that line blurred. And I was like, I just want to be an entertainer for anybody who who feels truth in me. And as my career, you know, went through New York and then, then even beyond. And even when I got to L.A., I was like, I'd love to do, you know, Chocolate Sunday because I'm not there to be a comedian that sometimes there's certain white comedians that I feel like their whole lean into being in front of any other crowd that's outside of just like being a a white guy is like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm going to try to amp it up. And to me, it wasn't about amping it up. It was about like, let me bring you into my world. And hopefully what we're really going to discover is we're more similar than anything else. So the Mm -hmm. fact that I got embraced by that community early I was like, well, that's great. That just I can now tell more stories in more interesting ways. So I was really grateful for that. Mm-hmm. And
1: I want to I talk about just really uh, briefly, like Mr. and Mrs. Cook, your parents, who, you know, because I follow you on social media and you post them quite often, it appears like they, they were huge influences on your life, people you really looked up to. How were they instrumental during this time when you're starting to elevate in the business? And then how did you deal with, you know, unfortunately losing them?
2: Yeah, man, it was like, well, it, it's like, I can't, I can't even talk about, The life that I was fortunate enough to have with them without acknowledging that when they left, when they, you know, they both passed away in the same year of cancer. Mm. And it was, it was really losing my best friends. My dad and I had gotten super close. My mom was, you know, my, my champion since I was a kid. And yet I got to show them everything. I really did. I got to show them everything that I promised them that I would do if they supported this crazy idea that I had. And so they got to be in the arenas and they got to see the biggest shows and some movie stuff that I did. So I was very grateful. I wouldn't be where I am today without the support, you know, early on of my mom. Cause my mom was like, I said, you know, she would do whatever she could to try to provide a little bit of a better life for her family. And I just saw that uh, the hard work that she put in, I'm there with her, you know, again, like I'm cleaning people's homes with my mom or, or an office so we can go home and have a, a relaxing night together. That ingrains something in me that I take with me for the rest of my life. You know, being grateful, staying hardworking, staying hungry. And then even when the, you know, the odds are against you and the chips are down and seemingly your your moment is over, that that's actually a beginning. That's actually a start. Uh, So I don't acknowledge something as like, when that was over, or do you look at that moment as being the, it's always a new beginning for me. It's always been a new beginning. And I got that from her, you know, it's always day. day she used to say, today's the first day of the rest of your life. And today is the first day oh, wow. of the rest
1: of my life. You know, it's interesting. So my mother, my grandmother, and my godmother, they all passed away in the same year in 2013, like almost a month apart. Wow. And they were the ones that I would go to and talk to about everything. So I literally, in one year, I was like, God has a sense of humor. And one year I lost every matriarch in my life. And there were, a moment of years where i felt by myself cuz there's a lot of people you can talk to but there's not a lot of people you can talk to so who became those people or persons that you started to confide in you know after you lost both of your parents and rest in peace to mr and mrs cook
2: oh man thank you yeah well first of all my the neighbor when i first moved to la his name's richard and he was my first neighbor we became buddies we became really close friends family and now richard he's probably going to knock on my door in about 20 minutes. He comes up, he swims <laughs> up at my plate because the public pool is still closed, and he's a swimmer. He's my brother. So I had a an incredible friendship that was forming with somebody who cared about me and was, you know, interested, fascinated. He got to see every low moment out in L.A. He got to see me when I'd knock on his door and be like, I got it, I got it. He got, you know, and then, of course, when I didn't knock on the door and he'd hear my door close, he'd be like, you didn't get it, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. a lot more of those a lot more of those. and then as i started to find a little bit more kind of like exposure publicly then i met jerry lewis and jerry lewis was man growing up jerry lewis movies and his his shtick the rat pack with dean martin and sammy davis jr and i studied these guys i loved them i loved them i felt like i knew them mm-hmm. and i knew his movies and i knew his history so I went to a documentary one night of Jerry Lewis's movie, Method of the Madness, about his life. Mm-hmm. I i never met Jerry Lewis. I didn't know Jerry Lewis. And I was sitting in an audience and Eddie Murphy's there and Steven Spielberg's there, and like everybody's there to support mm-hmm. Jerry Lewis's career. And I'm sitting about three rows right in the middle, and I didn't even know Jerry was at the evening. I knew he was like in his 80s, and all of a sudden they said Jerry Lewis, the world flap, and he goes up to the podium, and Jerry Lewis looks out. And the very first thing he says, he takes a deep breath and he goes, where is Dane Cook? <laughs> <laughs> to this moment, it was like. To hear that voice, the Jerry Lewis voice say my name. Wow. My mm. my world exploded. Then he said it again. He goes, I want to know where Dane Cook is because I understand Dane Cook is here. <laughs> put my hand up I, like I was in school I was so nervous I go to, and I said ready I go I go I kind of half stood up and I go I said Jerry I, I love you that's all I could say I said I love you I said Jerry I love you he goes well me and my family love you my boy and I need to speak to you after the event I sit in my chair Richard's with me and he's, me, and he's like holy shit what the fuck just happened like, dude I can't breathe yeah. I was like, am I being punked? Is this anyway, I talked to Jerry after the evening and we exchanged numbers. I didn't think I'd ever hear from Jerry Lewis. Honestly, I'm like, this called me like a week later. And I started talking to him on Sundays. He became a mentor. He became a person who during times of my life and career where the narrative starts to twist and people wanna like, you know, you know, Dougie, it's yep. like they build job and then you're they, they write you into like, you suck. And they, mm-hmm. it's all part of the machine. Mm-hmm. He was there for me consistently during all that to be in my ear and say to me, just keep working, man. The work will finally draw whatever back. They're going to write your this. You're going to say you that. Just keep working. Mm-hmm. Keep touring. Keep entertaining people. Do you love it? I said, I love it every day. I love it all day. I've never not loved what I do. And I never take it for granted. And I And I always have a new idea. And he'd call me on Sundays. He'd say, you're working on that new idea? I'd say, I am. I'm, <laughs> I'm working hard on this and that. Then one Sunday he called me. And sadly, it was it was about six months before he passed away. And this might be one of my greatest stories that I'll ever tell. Greatest moments of my life. And feeling like I'd earned a real respect from somebody that an icon. I learned so much from. Mm-hmm. He called me up and he goes, because he still was writing. Even at like 87, 86, 86, writing scripts. He was just always dreaming and working and he was touring even at 86 i would saw nine of his shows live packed houses grandkids mm. their grandkids their grandkids wow and he's killing and he's doing q a's so funny alive up until the end and he called me six months before and he goes my boy i have to talk to you <laughs> and I, he would always start like that and then he'd settle into his serious jerry voice but he'd always start like he, he knew that I love to hear that. And then I said, Jerry, what's going on? He get very serious. And he said, well, I want you to get ready for what I'm about to tell you, because I've got good news and I have bad news. I said, OK, what's the good news? And he goes, the good news is I have written a script and you're going to play the lead. I said, really? He said, yes, you're the lead in my new film that I finished writing. I couldn't believe it. I said, Jerry, what, after that, what could possibly be the bad news? And he goes, I'm going to direct it. (laughs) (laughs) He wanted to come back and direct another film at 87. (laughs) We talked about it. He pitched it it to me a couple of times. I loved it. And it just, you know, then unfortunately he got, he got ill and it never saw the light of day. But the last conversation I had when he was healthy, he said, I'm having a tuxedo made by, and he, Name the gentleman, I don't remember. And he said, and you're going to want a tuxedo to wear in the film by him because he made Frank, Dean, Sammy, and my tuxedos, Frank mm, Sinatra. I love Sinatra. He was the same guy that made the Rat Pack <laughs> tuxes to get me fitted for a tux for a movie that unfortunately I never got to pursue with Jerry. So having mm. people like him in my corner, and there's been several others, but I've always had people there, man, to like say to me, hey, you know what? when you're ready to work, when you're ready to get back on the horse and you've got a strong idea, then hit us up and we're gonna collaborate.
1: Right, yeah, I love that. Give it up
0: for Jerry.
2: Yeah, yeah, man. yeah, yeah a legend.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Now, one of the things you said that, that's interesting is, is true, right? It's like they love you in the beginning, they embrace you, they build you up, and then you notice the comedy and some of the things and jokes you say It doesn't necessarily work and then they wanna break you down. If you think about comedy from when you first started and the, how far you can go with some of the jokes, but you think about the times now where everyone is so sensitive, it feels like. Is it hard as a comedian to sort of feel the times changing and then start to sort of adjust the comedy you're, you're telling?
2: I think for new comics coming up, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's tricky, but not for the reasons of what people say about PC culture. Really, it's tricky because you need to fast track your therapy. You need to fast track being introspective. Because if you come from the truth, you're not going to really hurt people's feelings. If you come from your truth, then you're not going to get in that kind of hot water. So I don't subscribe to this idea that like, I've heard recently like Billy Crystal. I love Billy Crystal, but like, oh, comedy's the minefield. Well, yeah. If you're, you know, doing comedy that you feel like is negating something that, that has shifted in, in times, you know what I mean? It's like you have to, you have to be, uh, You have to do your homework, you know? Mm. If you're going to go up there and you're just going to talk willy-nilly, you're going to say some, you're going to get foot and mouth disease and you're going to get some shit tagged on you. And you might need that to get better. The problem is it's public now. There's a cell phone, there's somebody recording. So you can't fuck up and grow as easily, which means get to the truth of who you are faster. And if you talk about your experiences and where you come from, then people aren't going to be as easy to pig pile on you because... The truth is alluring, and the truth is the truth. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. No, it's, wh- uh, it it's interesting you say that because at the end, beginning of the interview, you mentioned like you know this is a crazy time, and we're about to come out of this. And I, it, from I see, you look excited. You look like like you're ready to. You yeah, got some stuff that you want to get out. Do you kind of want to go into it as we're going into this? I guess rebirth after the pandemic. How is Dane Cook looking at this, and how is Dane Cook looking going forward?
2: So four months before the pandemic, I had one of my dream gigs. I sold out Radio City Music Hall in New York for my Tell Like It Is tour. 2018 into all of 19, the best touring I've done. In kind of like the way I would want to emulate my heroes like a Jerry Lewis, I was now seeing the college kids that I came up with and their kids. Mm. So I'm meeting and greeting with the next generation of comedy fans. And that was so exciting. It was like, oh man, I'm I'm at the act two of my career in life. I'm 49. I'm right at that act two kind of 30 years. Ago. You're 49, Dane. 49. Yeah. You do not look it. God damn it,
1: man. They say blacks don't crack. Mm-hmm. God damn it. Keep going, DC. <laughs> you look amazing for 49, brother
2: fans It's because I got the love of the game. If you got the love of the game flowing through you, I think it's like a little fountain of youth shit. But, right. still, my, but still, my my knees are still getting a little bit. Right. Knees don't add out. Right. Dane, um, Dane don't drain. I came off the Radio City, and then I was going to film my special last July. So once that you know got uh, paused for me, now it's like I'm on stage last night, and um I had the material ready. So it was two years of touring to then film the special. So now the special, I've pinned two more theater dates for a little later in the year, take a couple months, get the cobwebs off, get back into the mix. But I have two new hours of material that have been in storage over COVID. And so the new special is going to reflect what we're talking about, which is it's the, it's the most truthful. It's all the things I love about comedy. It can be self-deprecating. You know, I take the piss out of myself, but at the same time, you can celebrate high water marks. And the most important thing is it's got to be fucking funny it's got to have what we call in comedy, the LPMs. What are the LPMs? Laughs per minute. So it's the best I've ever done. It's the best shows that I've ever done on the road. And once this special is done, hopefully we'll be back here talking about what that's about.
1: Hell yeah. And I know you have a hard out at too, but hopefully I can manipulate you you from not looking at your watch for 10, 10 minutes. I get 10 more minutes. I love it. So, because I want to, I want to fast forward. A little. There's so much I want to talk to you about, but I, I, I'm sure I like, I want to get you back in studio and we'll keep going, but I do want to ask this. So, You're at the height of your career. You're selling out Madison Square Garden, which is insane. You're killing it in the movies, right? And it seems like every movie you do, you're starting to work with bigger name talent, bigger name actors. They're doing much better at the box office, right? You go from good luck, Chuck, which to me is, that's a a fucking, I thought that concept was Brilliant. I thought it was genius. So I was like, I wish I came up with that. You work with Jessica Alba and uh, uh Fogel. What's his first name? Uh oh, Jesus Christ. What's the yeah. other Dan? There Dan you go. Morgan, yeah. And then and then from there you go and you do, you know, I hate to say this, the white hitch, which is my best friend's girlfriend. And <laughs> you know, because you know, Will had hitch, and then you think about yeah. my best friend's girlfriend, it was similar, and you kill that, and then Dane disappears. <laughs> right? And it's just like, wait a minute, what happened to Dane Cook? And then, you know, obviously. You, there are other things you're doing, but it's not on uh, front stage as everything else. And then I just see you pop up in American Gods on Stars. And I will say this: that character he played was phenomenal. You know. So what happened during that downtime? If you can speak on
2: it briefly? Yeah. So it's it's interesting because from where I was from 2000, say one, killing it at colleges and growing up until like 05 when the HBO starts stuff came together. And then 05, 06, 07, 08 was like Madison Square Gardens, 150 arenas, rough around the edges, retaliation had already, you know, double platinum. So I was cruising, right? I was cruise missile. But I, I remember calling my mom probably about a month before she got sick. And she said, what do you think's next? And I remember I said, you know, mom, there's no career that can sustain the amount of time that I've been lauded and Bella the Bald. I was like, "This the pendulum swings both ways." And she was like, "What do you think that means?" I said, "It just means that there's another comic who's ready to have their moment, and that's going to be their time, and that's going to be the cover of Rolling Stone, and that's going to be the 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 era is going to now say, like music, this is what we're listening to now." And I said, "But I know that if I you know continue to grow and, and grow with my audience, I can always have moments where." the relevance or the new gig or whatever people want to call it exterior that I'll always be working and doing what I love. I didn't know she was going to get sick a couple of months later. And I didn't know my dad was going to get sick during that time. So it was a year of impossible with seeing my mom and dad, you know, battling through cancer, dying of cancer. And then the year after that, I had this unbelievable experience where my brother I had to put in prison because he, he worked with me at my company and he was stealing. I mean he was just a total fraud. He was a con man and I never knew. the a sociopath. So then dealing with that for the next 2 years of a of a trial and the humiliation that was so humiliating. I I felt like I'd really protected myself from the piranhas of Hollywood only to find that my my fucking brother was the guy that was, you know, stabbing me in the back. So when you come out of an era that was white hot, you know, bullet trained for 8 years. Mm-hmm and being very transparent it's like the movies were great but it wasn't like the movies were like hundred million dollar sandler smashes they were they were good they nobody lost their house you know what i mean everybody was <laughs> happy but it was also me being very very honest with myself like you know i'm not I'm, not that anybody's truly truly bonafide there's a few a people that are like have illustrious careers but everybody else is like if you're not doing the work rebuilding and rebuilding and coming up with new ideas, then, you know, you're not going to be part of the the game that takes place out here. After that two or three years, when I came up for air, I was I was like unhealthy. I didn't know how to grieve. I didn't know how to deal with the betrayal that i had been through with my brother. And I had to get back on my feet. So there was a real good three or four year gap where I just had to live life and get healthy again and get happy. I really right. was like mm-hmm. not entirely Happy. I had all the wealth. I'd come from welfare to wealth. I lose it with my brother. I regain it. I work even harder that next year. I get it all. My whole goal was I want to get everything back. He stole from me by the time I see him in court. I did. I walked into a courtroom and I said in front of the whole court to my brother, you'll never take what's in here.
1: Mm. You can
2: all the money again. I started with fucking nothing. You can take everything, but you're never going to get what's in here. And I just knew leaving there that I'm a, I'm a winner. I'm a person that if you lock on with me and you try trying to get something done, we're going to win. We're going to win in some regard. And I knew that all I needed to do is catch another breeze, and the breeze sometimes can turn into so, so, so much more. So the last bunch of years from that has been working on the other tools, you know, directing. I've been writing and directing. I've been doing stuff like American Gods, American Exit. But uh, my man Mo.
1: I love the American Exit.
2: Wait, yeah, wait, no, that, yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's
1: something else. I'm sorry. Keep going, Dane. I apologize. Yeah, no, no,
2: it, yeah. it's it's been bu- like building towards what we're talking about, which is, you know, I wrote a book over COVID. It's about my first thirty years in comedy, but it's about philosophy. It's about how I came from nothing to something. It's funny, but it's dark. It's like Empire Strikes Back. I'm talking about <laughs> my go. brother. I'm talking about I'm talking about backlash. I'm talking about the the narrative, and then how do you regain it? And so that's what I'm in mean, now. I've regained this narrative great conversations like this. I think people get insight, get to know me. And I think Dougie and some of the people that have approached me even recently, they just know that I'm a guy that comes to work. If you have me on your team, I don't care if it's a small part or the lead part, I'm coming to work and that's all I've ever done. So I need to find the people that are like-minded that want to, you know, accomplish. And in the meantime, you've got the book, got the new comedy special, got something I'm going to direct, a script that I just wrote. So iron's in the fire, man. Just iron's in the fire.
1: I love it. And, and, and and by the way, I think you handled all of that gracefully and I don't, I don't want to even go back into, you know, the, the, the money being stolen, but the world at the same time, all this is going on, the world is changing.
2: We can go back into that because I'll tell you something else. When I made that money back, I I won't say how much, but I, I I told the court, I said, Hey, listen, whatever you got to do, throw the book at him. I got back to where I needed to be. Whatever he took was, whatever. I said, whatever comes back from that, whatever we retain, I gave it to children's hospital. I gave it to wherever I could. It wasn't about that. Mo- I didn't need that right. money. It was the principal, your it brother, healthy and, and, and feel that feeling again of, and by the way, it was the best era because then I wasn't shrouded in some weird negative. I didn't know that my brother next to me was bringing a lot of negative energy into my life. So once that was gone, it was like, holy shit, the last 10 years of my life have been my favorite of my life and career.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. But I don't even want to. As I was saying, like the industry was changing, and so the boom of social media, and now it feels like there's a new comic every day. Let me ask you this, Dane: Who are some of your favorite comedians today?
2: Well, one of my favorites is a kid that I brought on the road with me, Matt Rife, and Matt has got goods. Matt is, you know, he's humble, he's hardworking. And I brought him out on the last tour that I spoke of, the Tell Like It Is tour. And to open up in front of a comic that people are coming to see headline, if you can open a show, and you can you can crush, what is that telling you? I feel like he's setting himself up for a for an incredible year ahead. Leah Lamar is a woman who I've been doing some Clubhouse chats with, and it's been really fun and exciting to see how career her career is evolving because she is now using Clubhouse and social media. Like, I, it's like MySpace 2.0, mm-hmm. Clubhouse. Yep. So somebody like Leah, somebody like Matt, you know, they're the next generation of, of comics. Mm-hmm. And, and they're doing it in ways that I didn't even realize you could do it. So I get to learn from them coming up. They get to take my experiences being like the old bull. I've, you know, <laughs> I've, I've seen every high watermark. I've had my low moments. That's a lot of gems. you can You can inform that next generation coming up. And then they take all that shit and then they do it their way. It's been really exciting to, to be a part of that.
1: Now, that's fantastic. Now, look, I know you have to run. So, so this is how I want to manipulate you again. I want to get you back on. So I'm going to stop here because there's a lot more that I want to go into. But I'll right. pause here. <laughs> and <laughs> what I will say, Dane, is I remember we met, we met at Soho and you would pitch me this movie idea. And ever since I've been working in the film business, I was like, I have to find something with Dane. And no lie, Dane, so I'm just letting you know, there's a film idea that that I've been working on with a writer named Sam Wolfson who did Tall Girl with Mary Viola and Wanda McGee's company. And it's a two-handler for you and someone like Little Rel or Kevin Hart. So just know that's coming to you. I'm excited about it. And I think we'll have buyers for this. So, but anyway, Dane, thank you for joining us. Go get your teeth fixed. Thank God you don't have to wait six years anymore to get it done. And uh, (laughs) yeah, we'll we'll, we'll hope next time you're on, you're in studio. That's what I'm hoping for.
2: I can't wait. I would love that. Hell yeah.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Dane
2: Cook. Thank you, Dane.
1: Oh, and enjoy Boston being in first place for now. We're coming.
2: (laughs) We're Thank coming, you, brother. Bella. All right, I oh, yeah. wait To get in there, yeah. Next time, no more Zoom. I want to be in there. Uh, absolutely.
1: Thank you, Dane. I'll talk to you soon, brother.
2: Okay, guys, have a great one. All right, Take be care,
1: well. man. See ya. It was really cool having Dane on because you know one of the things, especially a lot of my friends, like they're huge Dan Cook fans, mm-hmm. and they re- and I'm happy that he was able to sort of brief briefly highlight some of the things that were going on during that downtime when he was here and then he just sort of disappeared. And it's like, did the rapture happen? They got to take Dane Cook. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to thank Dane for coming on. Man, I don't have many fangirl moments, but this was one of them.
0: No, nah, it was dope, man. What's really cool about him is that style, like I've always loved how relatable he is. Mm-hmm. and And you would think after finding out a lot of that stuff, which we all kind of, like you touched on, you would have a right to be bitter. You would have a right to be angry. You would have the right to just be whatever, but he's still like just as vibrant and energetic and excited about everything. And I think we all, after coming out of this COVID thing and now things are coming normal, maybe we need to breathe that breath of fresh air like, a, like Dane mm-hmm. and, you know, look forward to what's coming on.
1: Yeah, no, he has great energy. And I couldn't fathom someone, because they always say it's the people closest to you yeah, who does, who, who, you exactly know, when something it. happens because no one else has access to you. So it's like, I can't fathom having a brother steal money from you and then having to put them... That's tough. Uh, But anyway, shout out to Dan Cook again, Jovan. This was great. It was. It's been another episode of We Might Need Counseling Podcast. I'm Dougie. I'm Jovan. God bless you. Peace.
0: Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and comment on Apple Podcasts and visit our Facebook page, at WMNC Podcast. You can also find the guys on Instagram at Dougie Cash and at Jovan underscore WMNC. Also, a big shout out to Studio Pod Media, Noda Lab, and the Network Studios. Until next time, bye.